Welcome back to the LED Project Podcast. My name is Kyle Krieger. Uh, Wilkie is unfortunately in a team meeting at this point that was uh, running a little late. So I'm going to do the podcast today with Paul France all by myself. Paul, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you today? I'm excellent. I'm excellent, man. Like I, I said, I we super appreciate you coming on the podcast. And I, I recently just kind of became aware of you of because of the article you wrote on on how white male teachers can, you know, be mm. better allies. And I was really like, as soon as I read it, I was just like, man, we gotta, I, I gotta have a conversation with this guy because, you know, it's something my, my, my co-host on the podcast and he and I, you know, we started a nonprofit together. That's kind of what we do this through is we just um, try to have conversations with teachers and, and let them tell their stories. But, you know, he, he and I are, are polar opposites. I grew up Northwest Wisconsin, super sheltered, super mm. privileged, you know, your, your prototypical Midwest upbringing. And he, you know, he's an African American man who grew up in, in inner city Houston. So we have such a different experience in terms of, you know, education, how we grew up, but, you know, over these last couple of years, especially this year, trying to, trying to learn, you know, you know, just what impact race has on the classroom and, you know, terms like anti-bias and social justice were ones that even, because I taught eight years in Houston before I moved back to Wisconsin, that I that I didn't really even realize until the last year. So that, that article you wrote, I was really, really um, moved by it. So I definitely wanted to have you on and have a conversation about it. Well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, um, we, what I tried to do with the article was not make it about my my opinions and my thoughts, but actually, you know, practice what I practice what the article was preaching, I guess, which was you know to amplify the voices of um, people of color. Um, mm-hmm. So you know, a lot of the stuff on there isn't they aren't really my ideas. They're 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 the ideas of you know people who are minorities and who are experiencing this every day. So I think to your to your point of you know, creating places where people can tell their stories, that's, that's what's most important. I think that's what you're supposed to do with privilege, right? Is if you have, if you have it in some way, I think we all have privilege in some way, you know, some of us more than others, but if you have it then you should be using it to, you know, reach out and create spaces for other people to, to tell their stories. So I appreciate that you guys do this because I think it's really important work. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, like I, like you said, uh, a few of the people you had had on, you know, that you, that you referenced in the article were people that we had had on the podcast. So it was, Mm. it was really, I mean, and I think that's really what at least, I mean, not to dive in too quickly before the podcast, but that's what I've learned is just to try to start, not to try to start, but to keep learning because Wilkie and I have, have had this conversation and I'll be interested, you know, to hear, your point to this, I really question with myself, like, at what point am I informed enough to speak on topics like mm. anti-bias and social justice and, and even privilege? Like, I'm just starting to unpack, you know, how lucky, I mean, because I honestly like, and I'm not trying to sound conceited, but I grew up and I, I'm learning more and more that I'm in like the point zero zero one percent of how people grew up with an incredibly stable family with incredibly loving parents. You know, my parents are about to celebrate their 40th anniversary. You know, we, you know, they both had good jobs. We were, you know, we never wanted for anything, you know, both sides of my parents' families were all right in my hometown. So I had this incredibly supportive network of family and friends. 
and you know my sisters I have two sisters we all you know were very academically inclined school came easy to all of us you know we were all you know fairly athletically inclined and all these things we never really wanted for anything and mm -hmm. and I realized even in the areas where I grew up there were a lot of people that even though I thought we were having the same experience they weren't you know, even, yeah, absolutely. Even, even the friends I have that whose parents are divorced, I mean, they're, I'm learning how much different their upbringing was than mine was. Well, and I think that's, I mean, to your, your thought or your question about, you know, am I ready to be talking, when am I qualified to be talking, I can't remember the word you used, but you know, when am I qualified yeah. to be talking about social justice and privilege? I mean, I think you're doing it right now in a really great way in the sense that you're acknowledging the privilege you have. Um, and unpacking that. And I think that everyone's ready to talk about it, talk about those topics, so long as they do it with humility and open-mindedness. You know, I think when, when we go into talking about those topics, thinking we've figured it all out, I mean, anyone who says they figured it all out, you can, you know, call BS on them right away because no one has it all figured out. There's right. There's always something new to learn about the other people around you. So... I think as long as you come at it from a place of humility and open-mindedness and, and also just believing other people's truths, right? I think that's where it goes wrong most of the time is that someone will say, you know, something about their experience and someone will negate it, you know, in, in some way. And it's so long as you believe, accept, you have to accept people's truths at face value. And I think if you do that in conversations, then anybody's ready to talk about the topics, even though they're, they're meaty and kind of uncomfortable sometimes and tough to navigate. Right. You know, and I think that's something that, you know, I'm, I just turned 34 and even in my, you know, late twenties, early thirties, I still didn't understand that someone's truth didn't minimize my own. Like mm -hmm. I really, I really had to learn that and, and kind of back to what I said about my experience and even, even the experience of my closest friends is, you know, there are truths about their experience that I don't know about, even though there are people that I grew up with. Like I had the same group of friends from the time I was in sixth grade till now. Like I, I was yeah. just in one of my friend's weddings that I've known since the sixth grade, you know, even now. And it, it's just, but, you know, I think it, it's really easy for people. And I know I've done it in the past to, to try to feel like, well, if this person's experience is true, about this whatever situation or this event, then that means my experience of it isn't. And I think that's something that I had to really get over, um, not just as a teacher, but as a person, and as, well, especially as a teacher that myself and a colleague or myself and a student, we could have two different interpretations of a situation and both of them could be true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, so to kind of circle back and, you know, kind of get in so people can get a little bit of an idea of, you know, who you are and, and what you've done. So could you tell us a little bit, you know, the backstory of how and, and why you became a teacher? Sure. Um, to be perfectly transparent, I think it's kind of boring, but um, I, I, you know, I was working as, as a, actually it was music education to start, um, and I decided I really didn't want to be a music teacher, and I started working with young children at a summer camp when I was uh, 18, 19 years old. And um, I just kind of took a leap of faith and thought, I think this might be what I want to do or something I want to do. 
Um, and I do get that question a lot. I get the question, you know, why, why did you become a teacher? And um, I think it kind of happened by chance for me. And I think sometimes the, the, um, what's the word? I was going to say the better question, but it's not a better question. It's just a more appropriate question for this point in time in my life and career is why I stay a teacher. Um, cause I think a lot of people don't make it as long as I have. Um, are you, sorry, are you still teaching right now? I am not teaching right now. Okay. I actually, yeah. um, I actually, you know, I, I grew up or I, I graduated college in 2008. Um, and then I subbed for a year, uh, in Wisconsin. Cause at that time, that's what you did. You know, like everybody, mm-hmm. that, the, the prevailing thing was sub for a year and you'll put your, you'll get your foot in the door and you'll be able to teach. And it, it, it became very apparent to me early um, that that wasn't going to be the case. So that's what propelled me to Houston where I was for eight years. And then um, my sister and my brother-in-law live in my hometown and, and they have two little boys. So I moved back this uh, before the start of the 2017-2018 school year. Um, but And I had a teaching job at the high school here and then I got non-renewed. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I don't want to go into the circumstances of why I got non-renewed, but it just became a point where, you know, we're doing this podcast and we have our nonprofit and, and we have a program, you know, a mentoring program through our nonprofit that is really my passion, what I want to do. And the other part of it, too, is, you know, I moved 1,300 miles last year. And yeah. I probably could have gone, you know, I for sure could have gone to Chicago and got a job very easily or Milwaukee or Madison. But after relocating once, I just, I didn't, I didn't feel like relocating again. So I've, at least for the fall, I found a job landscaping that I'm going to do during the day to just kind of make ends meet and continue to, to do the podcast and those kind of things. Cause I feel like that's, that's really where I'm at right now in terms of, yeah where, where I think my direction is going. Um, but yeah, it's so, well, yeah, the, the reason I ask is because I feel like a lot of people don't make it very long, you know, like right. for whatever reason, right. Like whether it's circum like circumstances outside their control or whether it's just burnout from the classroom, like I'm about to enter my ninth year of teaching, which I can't even believe. And, right. you know, I think a lot of people don't make it that long. And I think, you know, I, I, and this kind of why I was saying, you know, it's, the reason I stay a teacher is very different than the reason I became a teacher. And I think what, what keeps me in the classroom is that it's just, it's one of those things that you can never actually master. It's kind of like, um, you know, you're, you, you'll never know everything there is to know about unpacking privilege and having conversations about it. And I think that you'll never know everything there is to know about teaching and learning and kids are always changing. And so it really just keeps me, it keeps me on my toes and it, keeps me really engaged and interested. I think it did that when I started. I think that was part of what, you know, got me into teaching, but it's definitely what what keeps me here now and and also being able to, you know, build relationships with teachers all over the country. That's that's been a really cool part of just blogging and um, you know, doing things like this is just getting to know other people and getting to know their experiences. We actually just posted me and another teacher today um just posted a a blog about what it's like to be a gay teacher. I'm openly gay, and so is he. Um, and um, we've gotten some really great feedback on it already. And also, again, to be able to create a platform where teachers 
can share some of those stories because a lot of the teachers that shared with us aren't able to share them publicly with their names attached to them. Um, so to be able to make those visible for other people and to build empathy for LGBT educators is super powerful and it keeps me, you know, keeps me engaged in teaching and learning and keeps me, you know, coming back every year. It's a pretty powerful thing. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, it's crazy to me because, you know, I've, I've met a few and we've had a few openly gay teachers. Like we had Joe Dombrowski on the podcast uh, a oh, few cool. months ago and, and I had a chance to meet Brittany Wheaton, whose Instagram is a superhero teacher. And it's just, it's incredible to me that, and it shouldn't be, and this is kind of, I think, like you said, a part of my privilege too. It, it's incredible to me the backlash that they get. And and Joe doesn't talk about it a lot and Brittany doesn't talk about it, but every once in a while the, something will happen to them that will show like just how difficult that situation can be for them. And I and I imagine you have some experience with this as well, but you know, that that part of being able to have an open voice is is another thing that I just it it's hard. It, and that kind of comes back to being informed because it's hard, it's hard for me to understand that. Yeah, like, I I can acknowledge that it it exists, but there's, I guess, not really a way that I could ever understand what that experience is like. I guess. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and and with that, you know, coming kind of coming back to your question about I I've never really thought of it. You know, between the difference between why you came and why you stay. So. Why, why do you think it is, you know, what are some of what you've heard from people or what you see is, you know, why don't teachers stay? Because I think there are some prevailing mm. reasons, but in your experience, what do you see as, maybe the question I want to ask is, what stops people from getting to that point where they have that desire to continually grow or, or whatever yeah. mentality they need to continue in the profession? Yeah, well, I think... Um... It all comes down to what motivates you, right? You know, what you can't make people, you can't really make anybody do anything. And in teaching, it's, you know, the money doesn't keep people around because you can, I mean, it's very easy to, it's not very easy, but it's, if you're an educated person that is, that, you know, has acquired a teaching degree, like you probably can find a job that pays more in a starting teacher salary, you know, or something comparable. It's a lot mm -hmm. less work. Um, so, like, when I think of motivation, I think of um, Daniel Pink's work. Um, he published a book called Drive. Uh, it's called Drive, The Surprising Truth About What Motivates Us. And he breaks down intrinsic motivation into three, you know, three major inputs, which, it, which are um, autonomy, mastery, and purpose. Autonomy being not like that you can do whatever you want, but that you can, you know, be a decision maker. Um, and I think all good decision makers do so within constraints. So it's not, you know, sheer independence where you just do whatever you want, but it's being able to, you know, have some control over some of the decisions you make. Mastery being this, not that you learn everything about something, but that you always feel like you're getting better. So you're noticing that your effort is corresponding to growth in some way. And then purpose being just, I understand why I'm doing this. You know, I, I understand why I'm here doing this work for these people in this way. And I think the systems that are in place in our schools, um, we see less autonomy now, you know, that we're so focused on c controlling and predicting student outcomes that we've started control pedagogy. Um, so that takes away teacher autonomy, which 
again, I don't advocate for teacher independence. I don't think anybody should operate in a vacuum, but I do think that teachers should be trusted to make decisions within, you know, mindful, humane constraints. Um, I think because of the, because autonomy is so limited, it's hard for teachers to develop that sense of mastery. It's hard for them to notice their own growth if every move is being controlled. Um, and then I think like, likewise, when you have no autonomy and when you have no mass, when you have no sense of personal growth, it's really hard to find purpose in what you're doing. Um, so it's kind of like a triple whammy of, of chipping away at intrinsic motivation. You know, you, if you don't have those three things, you're not going to want to stay. And I don't blame some teachers, you know, that are in, that are in really poor environments where they're not seen and they're not heard and they're not able to be professionals. I, I would leave too. I mean, I have left schools, um, you know, not because of all three reasons, but for a combination of those reasons. So I get it. Um, and I feel really fortunate that I'm in a school right now where I feel like I can make my own decisions again within, you know, within the constraints of the school, the mindful, humane constraints of the school. And I feel like I see myself growing as a teacher at the school. And I also feel like I have a sense of purpose there. I know what I'm trying to achieve and I know how it fits into the vision of the school. And I know how I know my role. I don't think every te all teachers have that. I think very few actually have that. Yeah, that was going to be my follow-up question is kind of how many teachers, you know, get a situation. And, and what really struck me with what you said was, you know, that that the teacher has a shared kind of purpose and a shared part really in that vision of the school. And I've worked at schools where I either flat out didn't agree with the vision it didn't it didn't fit in with the vision that I had of why I wanted to teach or I worked at schools also where there was really no vision at all it was just kind of there, there wasn't like that lead of we're all striving towards the same purpose yes we all want to educate kids but but I think when you say purpose to me it's got to be a deeper like we all are are going in the same direction and I've I've definitely felt like at schools that I was I was going a different direction uh, than other people, and I've been at schools where I felt like everybody was going a different direction. Absolutely, and there's there's a balance in there, right? Like, I think sometimes people do interpret aligning with the vision being that you have to agree with every single thing the school's doing, and it's you know it's it's give and take, right? There are some things I don't think I've ever been in any job where I've I've agreed with every single decision made, right? But it's you got to figure out what's important to you and. Um, you know, see how well you jibe with the, with the vision of the school. And I think, yeah, if you've noticed yourself working in opposition to the vision, it's really hard to be engaged and invested in what the school's doing. So right. I agree. Right. You know, and, and I really, I, I love that word mastery too, because, you know, I, and to kind of put it with what you <clears throat> said prior, I mean, you have you have the understanding that no matter how good you are as a teacher, you're never really going to master it. There's always going to be places where you can grow and, and things that you can do to get better. But striving towards mastery, I think, is super important. And that's and that's something you know I didn't learn until I was you know two or three or four years into my career that I there there was 
I could still try to master my craft and, and continuously be great at it while still continuously learning every year and, and becoming better. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So to kind of get into a little bit more of what you do, I, I loved and I saw in your, your blog that um, you said you want to make learning personal by humanizing the classroom. Could you kind of explain what you mean by that? Absolutely. Um, so I worked for a personalized learning startup for three years. Um, and at first I was, um, what's the word I'm looking for? At first I was very, I was drinking the Kool-Aid, if you will. Um, and the goal of the startup was to build tools for the classroom, um, technology tools for the classroom that personalized learning. So essentially what happened was like all the kids had a playlist, their own personalized playlist where we had, you know, a unique set of activities for each individual child. And the idea was that by individualizing their education, that we um, would make learning more personal for them, that they'd be more engaged and invested. And what I ended up seeing with time was that this individualization of education, this, I should say, technology-driven individualization of education actually didn't achieve that end. It didn't make learning more personal. It didn't make it feel more personalized. Um, and I came to this idea of, of making learning personal by humanizing the classroom in response to that because we were using technology to personalize um, and in essence, we were dehumanizing the, the education process by replacing people with technology. There's like this, this insanely flawed assumption that in order to personalize, we have to individualize. And the thought of individualizing curriculum for, you know, 20 to 30 kids in a classroom is, it's, it sounds like a lot of work and it is a lot of work. Um, so that's when technology comes in. We think, oh, well, we can use technology to minimize the complexity of this and achieve this, you know, individualization of curriculum. But in reality, learning isn't personal because it's uniquely tailored to you. You know, learning becomes personal when it's meaningful to you. And you could say the same thing to a whole group of kids and find a way to make it meaningful and personal to all of them. And so I think the, the idea of making learning personal by humanizing the classroom means, sure, using technology when it's appropriate, but it, what it means first and foremost is building relationships, knowing kids really, really well, and um, building learning environments that meet the needs of a diverse group of learners and that help them all meaningfully engage in learning together through dialogue, through discourse, you know, through working on, through, through collaboration, through working on projects together. That's what makes learning the most personal. Um, and it's kind of a, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's just, it's a, a deviation from the mainstream thoughts around what personalized learning is. And it's definitely a deviation from what education technology companies are selling with regard to personalized learning. Um, they're selling very data-driven, individualized programming, you know, whereas this brand that I'm 
not selling anything, but I'm just this brand that I'm, you know, trying to push is one that's more focused on pedagogy. It's more focused on what teachers are doing. And it's, it's also similar to the autonomy mastery purpose discussion. It's about, you know, helping teachers learn to be good decision makers and to and trusting them to be flexible and respond to the needs of their kids. I think that we're humanize is perfect for it because it's 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 about the things that humans are doing in the classroom. It's not about the things that the technology is doing in the classroom. If that makes sense. Um you know that I mean and that that makes perfect sense because you know the you know the the thing that we the the through line that every single person we've interviewed which i mean you're like the 60th we've interviewed every single person to to a man or woman has said the importance of relationships you know mm-hmm. in teaching it and they've not just said it you know it is important they're like that's the number one thing you know and i and i love what you said <laughs> that you know it becomes personal when it's meaningful so I mean, that that really, like you said, makes it about the person. So it's more of, if I understand you, you being able to connect with a kid, because I can think back to my experience both as a student and as a teacher that things were meaningful both because of content and because of that person. There were things that I studied in high school and in college that were meaningful to me just because I wanted to do right by a teacher who I really cared about. Mm-hmm. And there were also things that I just like intrinsically that I love that I love studying that they were both all those things were meaningful, you know, but but like you said, I, I think technology sometimes can become, you know, that I don't want I don't think crutch is exactly the right word, but you know, I think it is. Um, yeah, it, it, can, it can become a crutch. And yeah. you know, the and what I kept thinking while you were saying that too is, you know, when things are personal, you I really wish I would have let go of the idea when I was teaching, especially early in my career, that every lesson is gonna be jam packed and have every kid's gonna have a great response to every lesson. It's just not going to be the case. There are certain ones that certain kids will respond to and certain kids won't. And there are some and not just some, but there are a lot of lessons that you think are just the greatest thing ever when they're in your head, but but in in practicality they they don't really they don't really work out. But that's why I love what you said about about making it personal. Is and this kind of leads me into my next question, where you talk a lot about you know student success and and the connection it has to failure, and and I just think it's so important that when you're when you're making a meaningful and personal connection to be able to say to kids, hey, you know, I, I planned this out and I really thought it was gonna be good, but it's not because clearly if it's not connecting with them, there's mm-hmm. there's room for there there's somewhere that as a teacher you made a mistake in in the planning or the prep or whatever it is. So, you know, I really loved, especially in you know, the last few years, being able to say like, hey, yeah, I screwed that up. Because I my my last year teaching this past year I was teaching high school science, um, in an alternative learning setting. When I have a social studies background, so there mm. were there were so many moments where I had to just humble myself to the kids and be like, "Hey, I screwed that up. I didn't do that right," you know. And and I really think as the year went on, 
when they stopped being like, why are you here if you can't teach this? And they really started to get to know me and they were like, Hey, yeah, we got you. No, you know, no worries. So, so I, I love what you said about making it meaningful, but you know, like also what I read on your, on your blog was an interesting post, you know, about success and failure. So, so to you as an educator, what's, what's the importance or, or the link between success and failure for kids? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's impossible to know the joy that comes with success without knowing what failure feels like. Um, but I think also failure doesn't even have to be that painful of a thing, you know, making a mistake or experiencing some dissonance that comes with that mistake. That's, that could be labeled as a failure and it can actually be a really productive thing, right? Because, um, when that happens, when we have dissonance, right, we, we just intrinsically seek to resolve the dissonance and that's when learning happens. I actually have been working with a student this summer, tutoring him twice a week. And I'm not a big fan of tutoring um, because I feel like a lot of times when tutoring is done, it's not meaningful. You know, it's done once a week and mm -hmm. kids just kind of learn passively and it's really about like rote skill development and everything. And I view myself in a tutoring session more as a coach, you know, and I, right. I, I see him, I see him twice a week, which I mean, still isn't that much better, but he does work every day, you know, at home. And, but I was, I was sitting with him the other day and, and I actually just read, um, just finished reading Joe Bowler's mathematical mindsets. And, um, in her book, she talks about how our brain quote unquote grows every time we make a mistake. Um, and I said this to him, I said, you know, and I, I actually pulled out the book and, there's pictures of two brains in the book. One, it's like an, you know, an MRI or something like that. It's probably not an MRI, but whatever, whatever they use to figure mm -hmm. out yeah. the activity in your brain, you know, there's two brains, one, you know, that's not making mistakes and one that is making mistakes. And the one that is making mistakes, the whole brain's lit up, you know? And I showed that to him and I said, I said, this is what happens when you make a mistake, you know, like your brain lights up and it grows so much. And he's, you know, he's one of those kids that he has so many skills, but he's just so, he's so afraid to put something wrong down. And as soon as he realizes something might be wrong, I can see his whole body tense up. And so a lot of my work with him has been, you know, coaching. It's been coaching him through what a mistake feels like. And then also helping him develop the internal dialogue around how helpful a state can actually be, you know? So I, um, so I think the relationship there is that, um, I think success and mistakes or success and failure can sometimes be, be one and the same if it's a productive struggle, right? If it's something that's challenging enough where it's causing dissonance and it's help and you're, you're taking the steps to resolve the dissonance, like that's when meaningful learning happens. And I think too often now we shy away from quote unquote failure. We shy away from mistakes. And I think it's a lot of the baggage that we adults carry about the way we were educated. And when we made mistakes in the classroom, you know, it wasn't always always a welcome thing. So we don't want our kids to make mistakes. We don't want them to feel bad. And it's like, well, feeling bad or feeling feeling the, the uncomfortable or negative, a feeling, negative feelings associated with failure, that's just a part of life. And it's not the, it's not the negative, in my opinion, it's not the negative feelings themselves that have long lasting traumatic effects on kids. It's how their support system 
or it's how a child support system helps and encourages them in the face of those mistakes and the uncomfortable feelings and the dissonance. You know, if you make a mistake and and someone responds to you by saying, what's wrong with you? Or, you know, they respond by just correcting you all the time. Then that's that that's a traumatic behavior pattern or traumatic traumatic set of behaviors that are going to cause a way of thinking that's really toxic. But if you make mistakes and someone says, wow, I'm so glad that you made that mistake because now I know what to teach you next. Or I'm so glad you made that mistake and then you figured out what to do because you just learned so much. That completely reframes failure and mistakes as this positive thing that helps kids grow or helps people grow. Those kids are... it. it if that occurs, you know, keeps occurring and occurring over and over, that's setting up a behavior pattern and a thinking pattern of, you know, resilience and a growth mindset where where kids are going to be like, oh, I want to I want to tackle a tough problem because I know that I'm going to make some mistakes, but I know I'm going to learn a lot. Um, so yeah, so I think that kind of illustrates the the relationship between six and opportunities for failure. I think they're just both necessary to a really meaningful learning experience. Yeah. You know, and, and as you were talking to, I was thinking back to, you know, you said, you know, based on, you know, how I was raised and, you know, you know, the education system that I grew up in, like I can see how it manifested in my initial teaching because I was under the impression as a, as a teacher, even as a first year, that I had to have all the answers and I had to be right and I had to know everything and that if I didn't know something, I was wrong. And and there was, you know, and, and you used in one of your articles, you know, you talk about the dissonance, but also the shame. And there was a lot of times where I felt shame as an early teacher that I wasn't doing better or I didn't know certain things. And I wish I would could go back and be like, hey, you know, you're a first-year teacher who went from small-town Wisconsin to the fourth biggest city in the country to teach kids, you know, who are primarily, you know, Title I, and most of them are Hispanic or African-American. I wish I could have just been to myself like, hey, cut yourself a break. You're learning. You're, you're, right. doing, you're doing the best that you can in the situation that you're in. And I, I really wish I could go back and and cut myself some slack. And I think had I done that, I would have been able to, to really reinforce that with my kids better than I did. Well, yeah, if we can't cut ourselves slack, we're not going to be able to cut our kids slack. Right. It all starts with us, you know? Right. And I think, man, you know, the, the words, you know, and um, the books by Brene Brown on vulnerability and shame are all ones that I've read several times over. And it's really, you know, even as an adult, I'm still grappling with those things when it comes to, you know, being being vulnerable or, you know, there are times when, you know, being single and 34 years old, I'm like, I, I feel shame because, gosh, you know, all my friends are married and my friends are having kids. And here I am like, gosh, what am I doing with my life? Like, what have I done wrong to be you know, my age and single. And then I have to kind of be like, well, that's my journey. That's my path. And each step along the way I've learned and hopefully I, I continue to learn for that time. But like I said, I, I wish that I would have 
I, I wish myself would have had the skills to deal with those emotions because I really wish I could have helped my kids deal with those emotions better. Yeah, absolutely. I think it all, you know, it all starts with, with that awareness. If you don't, if we're not aware of it ourselves, then it's, yeah, it's really hard to cultivate that awareness in our kids. And I'm, I'm the same way, you know, it wasn't until I read her books that I really was able to identify it in myself. Right. That's really powerful. Right, right. So, you know, we, we started talking a little bit at the beginning of the podcast about that article, and I definitely want to make sure we come back to it a little bit as we're getting mm-hmm. ready to wrap up here. And um, so the article was about, you know, what, what white male teachers can do to be better allies to marginalized groups. So could you talk a little bit, you know, about where the article came from, but also, you know, kind of give, give some of the steps that you outlined yeah. to to help us be better allies for those groups. Sure. Um, so the, the process was, I, I just was curious, you know, I, I had some of my own ideas and again, I think it's, it's what brings people together is when you act with humility and you act with curiosity. And I don't think anybody knows all the answers to these questions. So I thought to myself, well, maybe I should just ask, maybe I should just throw the question out there. And see what, you know, see what comes back to me. And I got a bunch of responses, both um, in just the thread of the initial Instagram post and also um, through direct messages. And I just tried to tease out some themes based on what people had said. Um, I actually ended up coming up with five A's. I just, I don't know why I chose to choose A. I guess A chose me. They just all seemed like A words to me. Um but the first being awareness. I think we talked about that a little bit, that yeah. it's really important to unpack your own privilege, but it's also important to understand or to know that privilege is intersectional, You know that everybody has privilege in some way. Every man, every man in the country has privilege because they're men. You know, I don't care where you live, what color you are, like every, everybody, every man has privilege in some way. You have privilege if you come from a you know a two parent household. You have it's it's all it's all relative and it's all you know it's it's intersectional. So I think cultivating an awareness of that is so important because then you understand that everybody's different and you also understand that you know it's your responsibility to advocate for yourself, but it's also your responsibility to be humble and advocate for others. Um, so awareness is really important. Um, and then I, I came to this idea of acceptance. Um, and it's not that we should accept racism or homophobia as something we cannot change, but we should accept that racism, homophobia, xenophobia, all of the phobias are ubiquitous. They're everywhere, you know, and it's, right. they, they all exist inside us to a certain degree. Um, and I think once you accept that, that exists inside of all, inside all of, inside everyone, inside yourself, um, because of the, you know, the social context, it's a bit liber, it's, it's liberating in some ways because it's no longer attached to your identity. You know, you can say, I am not a racist. I am not, you know, I am not a homophobe. I am not a xenophobe. I recognize that that sits inside me, but I have, I have a choice, you know, and I'm going to choose to, to work against it. And that's where the work comes in, right? Like that's where the the awareness supports the acceptance and then enables you to do the work. 
Um, and it's hard. Like I remember, I remember first, the first time I was really confronted with my privilege, it was in college and I was in a social studies methods class and it was all social justice themed, um, or social justice oriented, I should say. And this talk of, um, affirmative action came up and I was so against <laughs> that, <laughs> you know, back in college, because I just right. thought to myself, well, I worked really hard to get here. And I don't want, you know, I don't want my spot to be taken away because someone else is black, you know, and I, I look back on that now. And I think, oh, my gosh, I was so not aware, you know, I just I just I just right. didn't I wasn't aware. Um, and so I think that's a really great illustration of how like, that kind of um, that privileged thinking, but also somewhat racist thinking exists in all of us. And I think it's, we, we have to hold each other well, I, Accountability is the last thing I talk about in the blog post itself. And a teacher of mine held me accountable and she can't remember exactly what she said, but it was something, you know, something about um, how people of color, you know, don't have as many opportunities. And she pointed out to the fact that I was from, you know, a middle class suburb and I went to a really great high school and I had, you know, two parents and I had a roof, all these things that I had that I just, I think I took for granted, you know. Um, so I think, yeah, that's, that's incredibly important. Um, but I also came to, um, amplification. One of the teachers said that we need to amplify voices of color. Um, and I think that can be really hard sometimes too. Similarly, we want, we want our voices to be heard. So sometimes it's really hard to step aside. Um, but it's really important that we do it because I think there are lots of, there are lots of white men out there that can share the white men, white male perspective. And there aren't a lot of female perspectives or not a lot of female voices heard. And likewise, there are not a lot of um, like the voices of women of color are oftentimes not heard at all. And so it's really important we step aside and we hand the mic over so they can tell their story. And then there's advocacy as well, right? Like advocating on behalf of them. And I, I, I like to think, I, I think I understand this partially as an, as a gay teacher too, um, that, you know, we don't, want to advocate for them in the ways that we see fit. We want to advocate for the ways in which they ask us to, you know, it's, you, you don't want to, that's why it's important to ask, right? It's important to be curious. And, and that's why I felt it's so important to ask before I wrote the, the blog post, because I was like, I don't even know if this is an important thing to write about or if I should be writing about this. And I got some really great responses and people, teachers and teachers of color were very excited to that this was going to be written. So I was like, well, great. It sounds like, seems like I'm advocating for them in a way that they are comfortable with and that they like, you know? So I think it's really important when we're advocating to make sure we're, we're doing it in a way that feels respectful and feels good to them and not just to us. Um, and then, like I already said, accountability is, is really important. And I think that's the hardest part is calling, calling someone out on, either racist thinking or homophobic rhetoric. But I also think there's, again, there's a big difference between calling someone a racist and calling them out on their racism. I think when you call someone a racist, there's, ah, there was an article recently about this somewhere. Um, but you, when calling someone a racist is probably really counterproductive. And in some cases it's probably necessary, you know, like in extreme cases, um, but calling someone a racist associates it with their identity, you know, and it's it's going to be really hard for them to change if you've already fixed them into that that label. But if you call out the racism, 
you think you have a better shot at saying, hey, you know, that, 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 what you just said makes me really uncomfortable because, you know, it sounds like what you're saying is that, you know, yada, yada, yada. It kind of makes it a little less personal and makes it more about changing the behavior, which I think is still really uncomfortable, but it might be a little more powerful in the long run than just labeling people yeah. as racists. You know, and, and a couple things, um, I just, without thinking of too, like, I think, you know, coming back to what you said about vulnerability, like, it makes me feel very vulnerable to ask you as a gay man or to ask African-American teachers or women, like, how can I support you? Like, what's the right way? I, I think it should, I mean, like you said, you have to be very humble to be able mm-hmm. to do that because I think it's easier for people to say, to, to advocate the way they feel like they should because then they know they're going to make themselves feel better because they can point to it and say, Oh, I'm, I'm doing it this way. But, but when you actually ask and you have the conversations, I, I think, and, and coming back to my original, original question about, you know, when are you informed enough to advocate or to speak on it? And my biggest fear is that I'm going to do that at some point that I'm going to think I'm doing the right thing for, for whomever, and I'm going to say something or do something that's going to be completely wrong and it's going to be completely taken, not in the way I intended it to. And and I do have that fear. So I really like what you said about, you know, asking people the ways you can advocate for them. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing, though, is you absolutely will do that. You're human. Right. You know, and it's it's inevitable. Like you're going to try and you're going to you're going to fail and you're going to say something. Something's going to come out the way you different from what you intended, you know, and I think again, what's more important than the actual failure itself is, is how you respond to it when someone calls you on it. You know, when someone says, Hey, you just said this and it it came across like this. If you respond really defensively and you don't, you know, make amends, then well, that sucks. But if you say, Oh, wow, you know, thanks for pointing out that blind spot. I, I had no idea that, totally changes the feeling of it for you know the person you've accidentally marginalized for me as a gay man what's most frustrating is when people say something homophobic and i call them on it and they minimize it you know and generally minimizing it is uh is an act of self-preservation you know it's not it's it's not because they actually want to minimize your feelings it's because they're trying they feel bad probably but that's the frustrating thing about it. You know, I think if someone misspeaks or someone's accidentally says something homophobic, I, I just want them to go, you're right. I'm so sorry. I didn't, I didn't see that. Yeah. You like, know, that it, makes all the world a difference. Right. You know, and, and the funny thing was being at the high school, you know, back, back about an hour from where I grew up at a very privileged, you know, affluent white school, it, it took me back because when I was in high school, saying something was gay was like the thing. If anything wasn't cool or it wasn't good, yep. oh, that's gay. And as I, you know, especially once I moved to Houston and I got to know gay people and, and, and you just have your world. I mean, like my world opened up when I went from northwest Wisconsin to Houston, like I saw what the world was really like, but I came back to teach at, at this high school and kids there were saying it. And 
I don't know how many times kids tried to minimize it when I called them on it. Yeah. And, and I flat told my kids like the first time, like, if you want to see how quickly I will get angry, use any of those terms negatively against a person, you know, and for the most part, the kids were good about it. When, when they would say something, they would say, Oh, you know, Oh, my bad. You know, I, I, I'll try not to say it, but I was so impressed because yeah. we actually had a, a, a male student who was bisexual and, and he just like would not have it. And I was so proud of him. Like he inspired me so much cause he would just like, and he wouldn't do it. He would do exactly what you said. He would just point out like, Hey, do you understand yeah. the way what you said comes off? And I mean, this is a, he was a 17 year old kid. I think a lot of the kids just don't realize, you know, like, yeah, I, I had a similar experience. It's interesting because I work with little kids, right? So it's a little different, but I had a kid come to me. This was like five years ago, I think came out of the bathroom. He's like, you know, so-and-so is a boy. So-and-so called me gay. And I just looked at him and I went, well, are you gay? And he goes, no. (laughs) I said, okay, so it sounds like you don't want to be called gay then. And we got the other kid out, and um, I essentially had the same conversation you know, with, with the other boy present. And he said, so did you call him gay? And, and he said, well, yeah. And I asked the kid, I said, are you gay? And he's like, no. And I was like, okay, so it's not a bad thing to call someone gay if they're actually gay and if they want to be called gay. But it sounds like you were calling him gay just to like get under his skin and like that's not okay. And it was I used the word gay like so many times in that conversation, you know? Right. And it it was almost like by by explaining to them that like gay is just a word that means this thing and you can't use it in a pejorative context and by just continuously having their their male teacher say the word gay like, I think it kind of, I could see the look on both their faces, like, oh my gosh, my teacher is continuing to say the word gay in front of me, and I'm so uncomfortable, that it was just like, I think it was just really educative for them, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, this is a real word, it's used to describe real people, and you're just using it wrong, so please stop using it wrong, you know, use it use it the way it's intended right. to use. I, it was, I thought it was really powerful, because I, I, I didn't hear anything about it again, um, and it's just like, sometimes you just have to educate them you just got to tell them like it is right yeah right all right man well well, i'm looking at this uh the the hard time cap we have for for you to get out of here but uh before we let you go um if people want to connect with you read your blog follow you online what are are the best ways they can do that yeah so my blog is uh com. so it's p-a-u-l-e-m-e-r-i-c-h.com and then my twitter handle is um Paul, P-A-U-L, underscore Emmerich, E-M-E-R-I-C-H. And those are the two best ways to um, to reach out to me. I try to blog once a week if I can, and I tweet out pretty often. I'm actually gearing up for – I'm actually – I have a proposal out there right now for South by Southwest that I'm trying to promote, um, so you can find me there. And, uh, yeah, those are the best ways, though. Awesome, man. Well – Super appreciate, uh, you know, like I said, the, the article you wrote and for you taking some time to come on the podcast. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it.